0: session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host Dr. Fadi Tolakwi and I'll be with you for the next 2 hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310441. 0555, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Our studio number again is 310-441-0555 want to announce the book of the week for this week. It is What to Do When Someone You Love is Depressed, a Practical, Compassionate, and Helpful Guide by Mitch Gallant and Susan Gallant. What to Do When Someone You Love is Depressed. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of self-help books and books on different topics. But sometimes we wonder, what do we do for a loved one who is struggling and going through something? And um, this book is about what to do if someone you love is depressed and because of how common depression is, it is almost inevitable that either you yourself or someone you're very close to will at some point of their life face depression, or especially when we talk about any mental illness, almost definitely that will be the case. Now, many times people will hide it from one another, so you might not be aware of it, but mental disorders are so common that we know that you're going to know someone or you yourself will likely experience something. So um, I'd heard about this book and wanted to read it, What to Do When Someone You Love is Depressed, to give some guidance on what you can do to help support someone when they're going through that kind of a hard time because it's not always clear what your role should be and what you can do and also maybe what you should not do. Not getting too involved at times can also be important. In a way related to that topic of what to do, others when they're going through something. I wanted to talk uh, today to start the show about empathy and a specific term that is used called empathic accuracy or also empathic inference and basically empathic accuracy or first just looking at that word empathic or empathy is when we can feel and understand someone else's feelings showing that empathy. So if you someone tells you Um, Their mother just died and you can feel that sadness with them. We talk about you're showing empathy that you could in a way feel their pain. And so then the accuracy part means that you're good at determining someone else's emotions or you're accurate at, uh, I want to say guessing, but in a way feeling and reading what someone else is going through. And there's different ways we can break this down, but some psychologists will say that we can look at two aspects of Empathic accuracy, determining someone else's feelings. One is um, what they call uh, affect sharing. And affect sharing is that we can uh, share or feel that state that the other person is having. So when they're sad, if they're telling us about something sad that happened, we can feel that sadness ourself. So to be able to really pick up on other people's feelings, we have to be able to be in touch with our own feelings to some degree. So that's the affect sharing. And then the other part is to label it cognitively, which is called mentalizing. So I can come up with the name for it. That is sadness, or even that is grief, a more specific form of sadness or type of sadness. So that first part, the affect sharing, is a part that many people can struggle with. Because in order to be able to gauge other people's feelings. You have to be in some level in touch with your own feelings. But most people, most of the time, aren't very in touch with their own emotions. And so because of that, it's going to be hard for them to pick up on other people's feelings. And this is why even I was talking about the book of this week relates to depression. Sometimes we find that people who have experienced depression are better with empathy in a way because they felt their own pain, even if it was difficult and challenging, it makes it so that they're better able to connect to other people's pain or pick up on other people's pain. There is even likely a part where we are using things like mirror neurons or parts of our brain that when we see something, someone is doing something, we feel it also as if we're doing it ourselves, that can help as well. So we have to be able to be in touch with our own feelings in order to be there For someone else or to pick up on their feelings. And so this happens in all relationships that when there isn't that connection with ourselves, we have a hard time picking up on other feelings. But I see this so often in relationships between parents and their kids. If as a parent, you're not in touch with your own feelings, it's going to be very hard for you to be in touch with your child's feelings or to pick up on what they're feeling. And related to not being in touch with our feelings is also the judgments we have towards certain feelings. Um, So if we don't like sadness, if we don't think we should feel sad, or we can't tolerate the feeling of sadness, or if we think we never should be sad, then when we see it in our kids, what likely is happening is at some level, it'll make us feel that feeling if we are even a little bit in touch with it or in touch with them, and if we don't like it, we're going to try to get rid of it. And that's what most parents do, that we try to get rid of our kids' feelings that we find intolerable. We think we're doing this purely out of our love for our child, but a big part of it is that we can't handle the feeling. As I always say, we tell someone, stop crying, not just because we care about our friend, really. It's coming more from we can't tolerate the feeling of their sadness and the feeling of sadness it's giving to us. Because we are social beings, so when we see someone who is sad, it is going to affect us, and in a way it should, uh, and then, so this brings up the other side, which is the de- degree to how much it affects us. So, if we're not affected at all or if we can't tolerate it, that is bad. But another thing you see, if we look at this side of empathic accuracy or empathy, is that sometimes people will feel too much, especially again, this is in very close relationships and parent child relationships. If the child comes and is crying and the parent is overwhelmed with emotion, so the child is sad and the parent in seeing that sadness gets so overwhelmed that they are now crying harder than the child is crying, well, then you can't help contain your child's feelings or be there for him or her. And so often a child, when they see this, will stop crying in that moment, but also bigger picture in general will learn, I can't go to my mom or dad with my feelings because they can't handle it. It makes them so emotional and that is overwhelming for me, so it's better not to go with them. This is usually an unconscious type of a decision. So it's not that they consciously are weighing it out, but they just don't feel good coming to you with their feelings. So they learn to hold them in, keep them in, hide them, even learn to hide them from themselves. So this is where, as always, we have to find that balance. When someone comes to us with some feelings, we want to feel something because that's the way we can feel connected to them and also be good at understanding what they're feeling. But we have to be aware that we're not feeling too much because then we can't actually be there to support them and to be there for them. Using a term from Winnicott, we want to try to be a container, contain their feelings. And if I'm so overwhelmed myself, I can't serve as that that container for someone else. And so this is what we usually like when someone responds to us. uh, If we're sad or if we're going through something, the empathy most people prefer is for some level of validation and understanding, and even connection, meaning that they might, you see that they feel it themselves, but in a way that seems like they can handle it, it's under their control. That I can manage your feelings. They're not too much for me, or they don't make me feel too much, so I can still be there for you. But I do care. It's not that I don't care at all. Imagine going to someone saying, my mom died, and they said, okay, yeah, can I do anything? You wouldn't feel very good. You'd want to feel something in them that They're feeling your pain at some level. Again, the degree is very important. And overall, we are um, very good at reading other people's emotions and feelings. And like any psychological trait or characteristic, there's a range. Some people are much better at it. Some people are much worse and everywhere in between. There's a spectrum of how good people are at picking up other people's emotions. And it is something you can improve. You can get better at it. One way to do that is to get more in touch with your own feelings. The more connected you are to yourself, the better able you will be to connect to other people's feelings, because in a way what's happening is when you see other people's feelings, it is affecting us. But if you're not so connected or tuned into your own feelings, you won't pick up on that. You don't recognize the feeling to be able to then connect to it and recognize, oh, I'm feeling this anger. I think my friend is feeling angry and you're feeling at some level. So we have to be connected and tuned into it and also have practice of trying to understand our feelings to be able to connect and see what is that feeling. I feel something unpleasant. Oh, it's an angry feeling. Maybe my friend is angry. But for a lot of people who are not very connected or who don't practice this often, they won't be able to connect to those feelings and then also to be able to label it or mentalize it as it's sometimes referred to. So you need to have both of those things. And also just in general, you have to pay attention to other people. If you don't want to know what people are feeling, if you don't want to care about what's going on with someone else, you won't get very good at it. So we have to make it a priority that we're going to pay more attention to something. We become better at looking at something, at figuring something out, the more attention we pay to that thing. But as I was saying, we tend to be pretty good at this. Um, we're we are so good at it that we really realize how easy it is for most of us when we notice people who have a hard time with it for example people who are uh, on the autism spectrum tend to have a hard time picking up social cues a hard time picking up emotions looking at someone's face or feeling their feelings and we see the social deficits that this can lead to so like many things Uh, We kind of don't realize how much we take it for granted until it's taken away or we see someone who doesn't have that ability. But most of us are very good at picking up on other people's feelings. However, that being said, we have to recognize that although we're good at it, we're definitely far from perfect at it. And this is why it's so important in relationships for us to communicate our emotions. Yes, if you are in a good, healthy relationship and you're both good at empathic Uh, empathy and empathic accuracy is high, you'll a lot of times pick up on each other's feelings. And you've probably felt this, that you can just see, oh, my partner's in a bad mood today, or he or she seems in a good mood today, or they seem anxious, or they seem sad about that thing that just happened. We can be very good at it, but we can't expect our partner to read our minds and to always be right. We're going to get it wrong a lot of the time. And that's why it's so important to express ourselves to one another. You can even say, I feel like you're sad. Another person can respond. But even we ourselves have to be proactive and upfront in expressing how we feel. Sometimes people will have a fight because they say, you knew I was upset about this and you didn't say anything or you did it again. And the other person will say, actually, I didn't know. And they'll think it was, you know, the first person will think it was so obvious, but that person really didn't pick up on it and they missed it. And so we can't just rely on our partner reading our mind, and picking up on everything. Hopefully they'll be in some level attuned to us, but they will miss things. So yes, we all want to have a partner who is attuned to us at some level, who isn't completely oblivious to our feelings, who sometimes will be able to see we're sad or anxious or angry without our saying it, sometimes even without us knowing it. At times for everyone, but especially if someone is not very connected to their feelings they might not even realize they're upset or sad or having some feeling but a close partner who is attuned to them might be able to pick up on that so sometimes your partner might even be able to serve as that mirror for you and in that way a window into your own feelings by telling you you know what it seems like you're upset and then you think like oh yeah you know i realize i am kind of upset about what happened at work today and so they can help us in that way but nonetheless as good as it can feel to have that we have to accept and acknowledge that people are going to be wrong and they're going to get it wrong and we have to communicate to one another about how we feel as hard as that can be there's lots of reasons we don't want to share that one is as i was just saying it does feel good to have someone be able to just tell what we're feeling and pick up on that and be empathic but the other part is that very often we don't want to feel vulnerable in expressing our feelings We'd rather someone just can tell we're sad about something they said rather than telling them, you know what, what you said hurt my feelings. That takes a certain level of risk and vulnerability. Even for a lot of people, it can be a feeling of weakness. If I tell them what they said hurt me, I feel weak. Or even worse sometimes, especially when people don't have that trust in their partner or trust in general, they might think, if I express that this hurt me, that'll just give them ammunition later on that they'll know how to hurt me again or they'll use that against me. And that's very unfortunate and it could mean either you yourself have have a trust issue or something is going on, or it could be that you're with a partner that doesn't make you feel emotionally safe um, or something with the relationship or all three, but something is going on that you don't feel comfortable to express to your partner when you're feeling sad or down or going through something and this is gonna make it hard for you to be very close to someone. We can't be closely connected to each other if we're not willing to take the risk of being open and sharing our feelings with one another. And of course, it's very important how the person then responds to that expression of the feelings in order to then further develop that closeness. But without the closeness, without those attempts to get close, we can't create a very deep emotional relationship and connection. And most relationships I see are at a very surface level When it comes to the emotional connection, there isn't a risk or risks haven't been taken to really try to get close to each other. And so it stays at the surface. But I I mentioned this, I think it was last week, that if you don't take those risks to get closer, you can't create deep roots in the ground in your relationship, which forms the foundation, which will in that way um, create the stability that you have the strength that you have in your relationship. The deeper you go, the deeper those roots go, the stronger it is. The more superficial and on the surface you are, then those roots are not so deep in the ground, and so the relationship can't withstand as much. So I've mentioned this before, that in couples therapy, of course they come in and we're looking at issues and trying to resolve some problems. That's very important, but oftentimes another aspect or a parallel aspect of what's going on is also trying to strengthen the connection and the depth of the connection between the two partners, because that's also going to help. It's kind of like if you go to a doctor and they're helping you with some symptoms you're dealing with or some illness, but they might also suggest things that are going to make you overall healthier because that's going to make it so that your body can withstand more. Similarly, we want our relationship to withstand more as well. So we want to have a partner who has empathic accuracy, who can help determine what we're feeling a lot of the times, but we have to be ready to recognize that they're not always going to get it right. And we still have to communicate. We have to share what we're feeling. They're not always going to know. Sometimes they're going to get it perfectly wrong. Sometimes they won't even realize we're going through anything at all. We have to take those risks to express how we're feeling in order to create a strong relationship. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310 You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delacui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the first segment, I was talking about empathic accuracy and empathy in general, and um, also in relationship, romantic relationships, but also with parenting as well. And so in this segment, I wanted to talk about talking to teenagers, because something that so many parents will, in a way, complain about or want advice about is, how do I talk to my teenagers? And even more specifically, how do I get my teenager to talk to me or want to talk to me? And a lot of parents will struggle with this. So I wanted to talk about some of the various aspects related to this issue of talking to your teenagers and trying to have good communication with them. So first, as parents, we have to be aware that children developmentally go through different phases and different processes that are going to change the way they interact and they relate to us. And it's important for us to be aware of this. So when they're kids, um, they want to tell us everything. Hopefully, if you have a good relationship with them, they'll want to tell you everything that things are going on, things that bother them, things that make them happy, sad, things that happen, happen with their friends, all their fears, all their wishes, all those things. And for a lot of parents, this is really enjoyable and they like this type of a relationship. And they like spending time with you. Oh, let's go to the movies Friday night and that they'll be so happy to do that. Then they start to get older and we see some changes as they get closer to adolescence where all of these things start to change. Um, They don't want to spend as much time with us. They'd rather spend time with their peers. And this is a very healthy thing that they need to go through. And as a parent, you have to be able to accept that. That is... Um, As much as before they like to hang out with me, now they don't. It's not because something bad is happening. It's not that they don't love you anymore. It's not that you've necessarily done something wrong. It is just a part of their development. that now they are supposed to turn to their peers more for everything. The time they spend, the social and emotional support they get, all those things are more about their peers. And then this is what can be tough for the parents because they're losing what they had with their child or could feel like they're losing they had. my child doesn't want to spend as much time with me my child actually worse than that might even now be embarrassed of me that's something that a lot of parents can have to adjust to that their kids won't feel that way until adolescence um, they want to spend time with their friends they won't tell me as many things it seems like they have secrets all these things this distance that they start to feel can be very difficult for parents to experience and it can make them think something is wrong and they don't like this change and so they'll try to make things stay the same. They think, well, something is wrong if things are changing. I have to do something about it. But this is just a part of their development. Your kids need to go a little bit away from you and a little bit more into their peers. They're going to want that approval from them, validation from them. They're going to want to fit in. They're going to want to connect with them. And we have to give them this space. It's a normal developmental phase and stage and process. In a way, we can say it's as if when your kid was crawling and couldn't walk yet and you'd have to carry them everywhere and now they're walking and you're saying before he wanted me to carry him everywhere now he wants to walk well of course you might not think that you might feel it at some level you miss holding them but you understand that now they can walk and they are supposed to walk and we want to give them that opportunity to continue to walk and get stronger and get better at it similarly as they're developing socially they go through different processes like this as well and this is one of them we need to accept that they're going to go away and so One aspect I mentioned was secrets. And there's a few things going on when it comes to your child either hiding things from you or secrets. One is overall when their kids, as I was saying, they're going to tell you everything. So now as they're getting older, they want a little bit of space and privacy, and that's good. Just like physically, they might feel that way. When your kid's six and if they're walking in their underwear or naked, you know, it's not a big deal. But then when they get to 12, 13, they might not feel comfortable with that. And that's actually a good thing for them to want that privacy and space from you. So they want more physical space, psychological space, emotional space. And so because of that, it's not that everything is just transparent and open to you. And this doesn't necessarily mean they're hiding something bad or something bad has happened to your relationship, but that this is What we can expect that the child now wants to have some of their own space. They're also finding their own identity. When they're a child, they can feel very merged with you and they're very happy about this, and this is what can feel comfortable for the parents. They feel very connected. They feel almost one with their kid. And now their child goes into adolescence and they're saying, I am me and I'm different from you. I don't know exactly what that is even, but I'm not just you anymore. And for the parent, this separation can feel like a tearing apart that's happening. And it's a tearing apart that they necessarily don't want or are not initiating, so it can feel bad to them. But for the child, this can be the tearing apart of individuation, of differentiation and individuation that they need to become their own person. And this is why sometimes even it's not like they know what they want. They just want to not be you. Similarly to how kids at a very young age when we start talking about them using the word no, this is the first awareness they're having of their own individuality, that I have my own space. So sometimes they say no, not because they really want to say no, but they're just saying, I'm not just you. I'm not just doing everything you want. So in the teenagers, we see even more of this, and there is this identity exploration that kids will go through. Related to this, I'm not you, something that Immigrant parents or parents who are from a different culture than the one they are raising their kids in that the parents will experience and usually not like is that kids can go away from their culture, from their family background. So just to make it simpler for a lot of Iranian-American families here, if you're immigrants or let's say even you were born here, but you still have that Iranian culture and heritage that you're sharing with your kids when they're little they might be very close to it and they might enjoy it and like persian music and dancing and food and the language and they're very fine with all that then they enter adolescence and they can even f- show disgust towards it or say things like i won't even talk the language anymore or they hate the music or they hate all the things related to it and you all might even see an, uh, see an embarrassment towards the culture, which can be very hard for some parents to swallow and to take, but this is again, them finding themselves and also recognizing that to fit in, which is so important always, but especially during this stage, they feel that pressure even more. If they want to fit in, they don't want to be different in that way. They want to be more like the kids at their school to connect to them and they don't want something that makes them stand out in some ways different and bad what might feel like bad to them and so they move away from that and so it's a part of their individuation becoming themselves differentiating themselves from you but also wanting to fit in at the same time with the people around them who now matter more before you mattered more to them they wanted to be same as you now their peers matter more so they want to be more like them i want to be like the people in my school And so for parents, this can be difficult. I even remember myself, maybe not in an extreme way, but as a kid really liking the Persian culture, and then in teenage years, going away from it more. And then as I got older, I came back to it in some ways and saw that I did enjoy lots of of the parts of the culture and wanted to connect to it. So we go through this process, and as parents, we have to recognize that this is... Developmental stages and phases, and give our kids that space to go through it rather than saying, Oh, he's going away from the Persian culture. We have to pull them back and force them to listen to this or do this or speak Farsi or whatever else it might be. This is something that they are going through. We want to give them that space to go through that process. So we can see in so many ways your children are going away from you. And this can be tough for a parent to see that, but we do want to recognize that this is a natural process that we want to give our kids the space to experience. Now, when it comes to communication overall or in general, uh, as I've already alluded to, we can see how it could it's going to become less than what we're used to. They're going to be spending more time with their peers, more time in their room, more time alone, and sharing less with us, maybe even feeling like we might feel like they're hiding things. And that's part of what's going to be happening. But what also What you have to be aware of as a parent is this is part of the process. They're going to give you a little bit less, but you want to make sure they feel like the door is always open towards you. It's not that they have to tell you everything. It's not that they must say everything or else they're in trouble, but you want them to know that the door is always open for them to talk to you, that that in that direction, there is no barrier. And that means that they can come to you with anything and any time. So any topic is not off limits. And that's why I've told um, many parents on the air and also just uh, talking in general about how you want to even sometimes talk about topics that might be uncomfortable. Don't force them to talk about something that's going to make them feel super awkward, but show them that any topic is okay and no topic is off limits. So if they bring up sex or drugs or some other topic that might be a little bit sensitive or taboo, you don't want to shy away from it at all and show them that it's perfectly okay for them to ask and to want to know. You might not have all the answers and you can even let them know that I don't know everything or even there's some things you say, I don't want to get into all of this yet with you, but we can talk about these topics more because depending on their age, you might share different things or not share everything, but you want to make it very clear to them that they can come to you. And then the other aspect, so there's talking about different topics, is how you respond to what they tell you. I work with a lot of families or I've heard it so many times before they say, I tell my kid, he can tell me anything or she can tell me anything, no matter what it is, don't ever be afraid you can tell me. But then when the kid comes and tells them some things, they react so strongly and with so much judgment that the kid doesn't think I can tell you anything. So the words are important to tell them. Yes, you can tell me everything great, but you have to follow that up with when they do come to you and share something. You don't respond in a harsh, judgmental way or else they'll learn to keep things from you more. I'm not saying if they share something you don't like, you have to pretend like you love it. You can even express your concerns or how you're feeling about it, but how strongly you express it is important. So if you tell your kid, no matter what's going on in school, you can tell me. And one home they come one day they come home and tell you, I got a C on a test, and then you blow up and explode and punish them and take their phone and do all these things and go crazy. Well, how likely do you think your kid is going to be to tell you the next time they get a even a C is not such a bad grade, but they get a not a great grade or they're going through something. So be aware of how your responses can really contribute to whether or not your child is open to you. Your child already in the teenagers is going to be telling you less. But how you respond to what they do tell you will either in a way make or break if they're going to tell you more. So you have to be very careful about how you respond. If you tell your kids it's okay to come and tell me anything, great, but then show them that when they come and tell you anything, you are going to be able to talk to them in a calm way. They shouldn't feel judged by you. They shouldn't feel like you're going to love them less or any of those kinds of things. And sometimes parents will say, of course, I'm going to love my kid no matter what they do. But your child might not always feel this if you seem like you're so disapproving of things they're doing, or if you're judging them so strongly, they might not feel like that love is there no matter what. So if you really love your kids unconditionally, show them that and how you respond to them. That's very important. So we have to be critically aware of this, that if we want our kids to be open with us, of course, they always say, he won't tell me anything. She won't tell me anything. One, that's part of going through teenage years. But On top of that, be aware of your side. Don't just focus on why doesn't my kid tell me anything. Focus on how easy do I make it for my child to tell me things? How good of a communicator am I? How welcoming am I of things they might tell me that I might not even like or that I'm worried about? Don't focus just on their side. Focus on your side. And that's true of anyone, even if you're in a romantic relationship and you think, my partner doesn't tell me anything. Maybe your partner's closed off and those things are going on from their side, but from your own side, always look at how easy do I make it for my partner to uh, tell me things? How good of a listener am I? Do I show them that I want to know more things? Do I show interest when they share things? Do I respond in a way that's non-judgmental and not harsh? All those things are very important. And especially when it comes to your kids, it's very much on you to make sure they feel okay, that the door is always open to come to you with anything, sad, happy, upset they made a mistake they're going through trouble give them that space to come to you and they still won't tell you everything we shouldn't expect that as the goal that's never going to happen but we do want to make it so that they can share with us what they want and that we can be a support for them I'm always here for you you might not want it but I will be here that's the message they should have and really feel from you and that can improve the communication there's no way to force someone to talk to you they have to want to talk to you And you have to create the conditions to make them want to talk, not force them or say, because I'm your parent, you have to tell me that's not going to work. You have to show them that talking to me can be beneficial, can be helpful, both for you and also for our relationship. And I'm going to make it that way. And that's very important. So it's tough when your kids change in ways that sometimes make them more distant from you, but as parents, we have to recognize we're here for their growth and their development, not to get something from them. And we give to them in a way that allows them to grow sometimes away from us, but we still want to always be there for them. All right. We've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break was talking about how to communicate with your kids or... Especially when they become teenagers, and more on the side of the listening and receiving. And so, in this segment, I wanted to talk in general about communication when we ourselves are speaking. So, obviously, there's two sides to a conversation, and it's very important how we listen and respond to what someone tells us, but also how we communicate is so important. And so, there is the classical way of breaking down communication into three different types passive, aggressive, and then also uh, assertive being what we tend to think of as the most healthier, the way we want to respond. And of course, then there's things like passive aggressive communication, other forms. So we'll we'll, we'll keep it in this simplistic form of things. Um, But when we look at the types of communication, no one is purely one way all the time, passive, um, aggressive, or assertive. And really we don't need to be, or we shouldn't be. Yes, assertive is likely the healthiest way most of the time, but sometimes it's okay to be passive and sometimes we might need to be aggressive in a certain moment. That can be fine. It's just what we want to see is what we tend to do more often than not. So people who are passive, what we mean by that as the word or the label would imply is that you let things happen. You don't want to create conflict. You don't want to say something someone doesn't like. People who are people pleasers almost always are going to use passive communication styles and patterns. If someone says something, you won't say what you like or don't like, or if you disagree, you don't want to make anyone feel bad. This is what we would consider nice communication. And nice, although I know it sounds like a good word, to me, it's a bad word because it means we're being not genuine. We're just saying things to either be liked, to avoid conflict, um, to just take the easy route, to be comfortable. So passive communication means that we Don't express what we're thinking and feeling. Now, interestingly, a lot of people who are very conflict avoidant, people pleasers, um, and who practice passive communication, what they've learned is actually to get detached from their own feelings. So they don't even realize a lot of times when they're upset or not okay. It usually builds up so it doesn't go away and so it can be there. But if you ask them, they say no I really didn't care I don't care what we do or we don't do or when you said that it didn't bother me when a lot of times it actually does and later or if they really do think about it or take their time they will see that it's there of course even if you ask them if they are passive and they're conflict avoidant they still might not want to acknowledge it because that could create conflict or something uncomfortable but really sometimes you can see that they don't know that really they feel something so they get so detached from it because In a way, that strategy makes sense. If your goal is to avoid conflict, to avoid uncomfortable conversations or saying something someone doesn't like, which a lot of times comes from this feeling that if I say something people don't like, they won't like me, they won't love me. Or if I create a conflict, conflict means the end of the relationship. And that's terrifying or scary. So if I want to have this type of a style where I'm avoiding conflict, it's actually even safer for me not to even feel my feelings. It makes sense as a strategy because if I feel them and then I try to hide them, that's a problem. And uh, in The Moral Animal by Robert Wright, um, I was talking about this concept of how we actually think or it can make sense that the unconscious in a way serves as this way of being able to deceive ourselves because if it's beneficial to at times deceive each other, that's good, but then other people are going to try to detect our deception. So even better than that is if I can deceive myself, if I don't even realize my own deeper intentions or wants that can be helpful. So in a related way, people who tend to have a passive communication style, they a lot of times don't even know what they're feeling themselves. And so it takes first recognizing that conflict is okay, that um, making someone unhappy or saying something that they don't like is okay. But for people who are passive, this can be something very hard to overcome. They have to want to do that. What tends to happen is people who are passive, they tend to build up resentment in their relationships. So they don't say anything. They don't say anything. They don't realize even sometimes they're not okay, but it builds up and builds up and they might even explode or they start to distance themselves from people or they have to hide things because if I can't tell you, for example, you invite me somewhere and I don't want to go, but I don't know how to tell you because I don't want to make an uncomfortable conversation or I don't want to um, create conflict, I might just not tell you and not show up. And then I don't even know how to tell you afterwards what to do. So what we find is people who are passive are also big time avoiders of things. Being passive itself is a general way of avoiding, but they'll avoid things which actually can make people more upset because if someone is not coming or if someone can't pick you up, or if someone is going to do something or not do something, you'd rather know, but someone who's passive and so afraid of conflict will avoid that conversation altogether, which actually ends up hurting the people around them more when all they want to try to do is make things okay and make sure they're not looked at as a bad guy, which doesn't create good relationships. So that's one side. On the other side, we have aggressive communication. And that's, as the name implies, where you are only focused or concerned about what you want, kind of like my way or the highway. So if we look at these two extremes, when you're passive, the way they approach it is as if The only thing that matters is what the other person wants. When someone is aggressive, the way they're communicating or the way they approach things is that what I want matters and what you want does not matter. So they don't mind uh, stepping on other people's toes. They don't mind even getting um, verbally aggressive or it could be physically aggressive, but in a way using that as a way of getting what they want. I want it to go my way, so I'm going to push to get my way, which comes from a place also of not trusting other people and not feeling that we can have communication where we might even disagree, but come to a good place. Or you're going to care about my interests as well. So I'll care about your interests. So although when we look at someone who's aggressive, it could appear like they're being very strong. It's coming from a fear or a weakness that actually in communicating, I won't get what I want. Other people won't give me what I want if I ask for it in a calm way, or if I try to communicate with them. So as much as it might seem like they're so strong, it's actually coming from a weaker place than we might realize. So it's not actually strength that we see in aggression. It's more of a a defense against not getting what we want. So we don't want to communicate in an aggressive style because if we're around people, and we're aggressive one, just that form of communication is not good. And we don't build healthy, strong relationships where both people can feel like they can express themselves. What both people want matters. So as I mentioned, someone who's communicating in a passive way, they're too much focused on what the other person wants. Someone who's communicated in, communicating in an aggressive way, it's too much about what they want. And sometimes these people can even match in a way well with each other, because if you're an aggressive person, and when we even say aggressive, it doesn't necessarily mean you're always yelling, but it could just be that mindset that what I want matters more than what you want or focused on just what I want. So in this way, someone who's passive and someone who's aggressive can seem to at least initially attract each other or be a good match for each other because if I always want what you want and you always want what you want, well, we're going to be on the same page. The problem is if you have two aggressive people, that can be a problem. Sometimes two passive people, no one makes a decision or no one expresses themselves, that itself is an issue, but initially it's a good match. But a passive and aggressive person, eventually the one who's passive will usually build resentment and something will go bad or go wrong. So it, it might start off okay. It might seem like, oh, what a great match. I never want to make it about you, about me, and you always want to make it about yourself. That's a good match, but it doesn't end well. What we want to do is be more assertive. Being assertive means that I will express what I want. I will express my thoughts, my feelings. If I disagree, I'll share that. If I want something, I'll share that. If I feel something, I will share that, but with respect and care for you as well. So it's not my way or the highway. Um, But it's also that my way does matter too. So within these two extremes, where if you're passive, it's all about the other person. And if you're aggressive, it's all about you. When we're assertive, it's all about all of us. I'm going to express myself. I want you to express yourself. And then we can figure things out. So I have to state my feelings because only I know them. So I'm going to make sure I say them. And I hope that you will do the same thing. And then if we both do that, then we can have actual communication where everything is out on the table and now we can figure things out. But if I hold things in or if I'm too aggressive or if you're too passive, we can't actually get everything out there. So being assertive means I'm going to say what I want, even though sometimes people might not like it. And I'm not saying it to make them not like it or to upset them. I'm saying it because it's what I actually think or feel. And that's why when we are assertive, we have to be ready if, especially if you're someone passive, that you have to be willing to face more discomfort more conflict, letting people down, saying things that people don't always like, making sure that we still say what we want. Now, even when I say that, saying things that people don't like, I want to make this point very clear. Sometimes people think, well, people are too passive and nice. I just say it how it is. and But what they really mean is that they say mean things. And there's a difference between being assertive and being mean. Yes, if you're assertive, sometimes people won't like what you say, but it doesn't mean that you have to say it in ways that people don't like. So if I'm just saying it to be mean, if I'm insulting you, that's different than being genuine and open with you. I can say the same thing in a kind way, in a loving way, or I can say it in a mean way. But sometimes people see it as the strength when they just say things in a harsh, mean way that it means they're so open and real. When it's not about being real, it's about being mean, which is a way of expressing their anger and being aggressive, which isn't the same thing. And sometimes it's a blurry line. Because like I said, you might think, well, I just said something and they didn't like it. That means I was being aggressive. Not necessarily. Your intention is important. If I really just wanted to let you know what I think and feel, that's different than if I want to hurt your feelings. And we can only know that ourselves. And we have to really take a close look and try to understand what was my intention and what I said and how I said it. But in being assertive, we have to be ready for conflict to be more a part of what happens and conflict. I don't mean actual harsh fighting or negative fighting, but disagreements. If we both say what we want a lot of times we won't want the same thing and that's okay relationships can withstand that not only sh- can relationships withstand that any relationship has to include that that's part of a relationship but what can be a struggle for people who are passive um, even it comes up in therapy when i've worked with someone who's passive when we try to work on being more assertive they can almost get frustrated with the process because they say hey now that i'm being assertive people get mad sometimes or conflict happens And yes, that's what's going to happen. And you have to be willing to face that. So when we say being assertive is the best way to communicate overall as a communication style and pattern, it doesn't mean that all your communications are going to be easy and fun and swift. No, actually, now you're going to face sometimes discomfort, uncomfortable conversations, conflict and all those other things, because now you're being more real. So by being more real, you take the risk of really facing more challenges as well. But you get the reward of one, being more true to yourself, not just swallowing all your feelings and thoughts and wants, and you get to express yourself. And also two, because of that, having more genuine and deep relationships. You can't get that close to someone if you're both just trying to be nice or polite or being passive. There is a lack of depth. And of course, you can't get very close if you're just being aggressive either. So that other extreme isn't healthy. And in most things, what we find is that there's two extremes. Neither one of them is healthy and somewhere in between is the healthier one. And this is the case with communication. So if you're passive, you might think um, that's bad. So let me go to the other extreme. And that's actually what happens at times. I've seen people who are very passive and it's also because they've built up resentment and also because they feel like, well, what I was doing is wrong, I should basically do the opposite, that they go to the other extreme and at first become more aggressive because they've been holding this all in. If you've been in a relationship and you've been passive the whole time, you've been building up this resentment. And now if someone says, okay, actually express what you feel, a lot of anger might come out at first. So we have to be aware of that too, that the opposite of something bad usually isn't something good. The opposite of passive isn't good. The opposite of aggressive isn't good. It's somewhere in between where both people matter. What you want matters, what I want matters. Let's both share what we're thinking and feeling and then come to a good place together. But if either I hold things in, or if you try to overpower me, we're not going to get to a good place. So we want to strive for assertive communication. And I say that because I say strive because no one's going to be perfectly assertive. And as I mentioned earlier, you don't even need to be. Sometimes you can be passive. Someone might really want something and you say, you know what? I'm going to step back and let them, or you might be feeling a certain type of way that you don't want to be as assertive. That's okay. It's just like mindfulness where. We might even notice when we're not being mindful, but we want to just be more aware of it. We want to be just more aware of how we're communicating. Am I being passive? Am I being aggressive? Am I being assertive? And also the whys. Usually if we're passive, we're afraid of conflict. We're people pleasers. We want to make sure everyone likes us and everything goes okay. We're afraid that conflict means the end of a relationship. And if we're aggressive, we don't trust other people. We don't trust ourselves. We don't trust that we can get what we want by just having... A very calm communication, very likely we learned it from somewhere. There was aggressive communication in the home or we didn't get what we wanted and now we think we have to force to get what we want, but that's not coming from a good place. When we're assertive, we approach things in a calm way and there is a trust that you're not out to get me i'm not out to get you we can talk about things and come to a good place together so we want to strive for that assertive type of communication and how we express ourselves all right we've reached another commercial break studio number 3104410555 we'll be right back welcome back we wanted to talk now about feelings a topic jokingly say I don't talk about enough, but wanted to talk about just feelings in general more in a um, overall view, but then also getting into how our feelings can change about things or people. So when we look at feelings overall, what we see is that the reason why we have emotions or if we try to understand it from an evolutionary perspective or even why animals have feelings also is to have us either want to approach something or go away from something. It has this um, purpose of making us approach or withdraw. And that's why we see it even in animals, even in bacteria, in a way we can see feelings or emotions and how they respond to things. By emotions, I mean that they show a response, not that um, they're crying or that they're yelling, but that they respond to things in the environment that tell them either to approach or withdraw. And and then also we can look at feelings in two ways of dividing it one is positive or negative meaning if it feels good or feels bad and then also the intensity from very strong to very weak so the positive and the negative in a way means going towards or going away from and if we look at some human feelings that we think about like sadness we would think of as negative in the valence and or how it feels and then happiness or joy we would look at as a positive feeling and then there's different strengths so there's Um, A slight disappointment would be a a negative feeling that's slightly negative uh, valence or intensity, not very intense. And then you can have grief, for example, losing a loved one to death might be a very strong intensity negative feeling. So we can look at feelings in this way. And because of that, we have feelings towards everything, meaning right now I'm sitting in this room chair or the chair I'm looking at brings up feelings, microphone, computer, Um, people will have different feelings. Everything has a feeling state. And this is why when people sometimes say, I'm not emotional, I don't have feelings, I'm just rational, it almost makes me laugh because we're always feeling something. We always have a feeling state about everything around us and also just within us. So feelings, in a way, we can look at it as our temperature, which it's always there. You might not right now be aware of your temperature. Hopefully it's somewhere around 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever it might be. You might not be aware of it, but you have a temperature. You can't say I don't have temperature. Everyone does have a body temperature right now. You just might not be aware of it. And then interestingly, if we compare that to feelings also, most of us don't notice our body temperature until it gets really hot or really cold. If you like get a fever or if you get the shivers, then you pay attention that there's something going on with your body temperature. Similarly with our feelings, some people who are not as in touch, we only feel them when it gets really intense. If you get really, really angry or really, really, really sad, then you might feel them or really recognize the feeling. It's the same kind of aspect. So we always have a feeling state. If you think about your, if you have a baby and you think about your baby, there's feelings you just have just from thinking about the baby. If you have someone you really dislike in your life, just thinking about that person brings up feelings of approach or withdrawal. Even words have feelings that they can bring. Again, usually it's not going to be very intense, but maybe if you see a a word like murder, it might bring an intense feeling. But if you see a word like paper, you might not feel much. Unless maybe you own a paper company, then you might have feelings that come with it. So I've even experienced this when I'm, let's say, watching sports and the, the team's on the bottom, they show scores. A lot of times I have no response if I'm not paying you that much attention, but then if it's a team I like or dislike, I realize I feel something. It says Barcelona and I'll feel something because I like Barcelona or it says the Lakers and I'll feel something because that's my favorite basketball team and I'll want, want to see what it says about them. And so I'll feel something. And so the reason why I'm also bringing this up is that it shows us that to show us also that our feelings can change about certain things. So I talked on Monday's show about, um, LGBTQ rights and how people can have negative feelings about this group and that this group still gets a lot of discrimination and prejudice and even legally, depending on where you live, can have things against them. Um, but that fortunately, even if someone has negative beliefs about a certain group, this can change. It doesn't have to be fixed. And that we should realize it's more of a feeling than it is about them being good or bad. A lot of times we have this thought that, oh, I don't like this group because those people are bad. But it's usually not because those people are bad. It's because you have bad uh, biases about them. You've heard things in the media or from family or whatever it might be that makes you dislike that group. But it's not set in stone. It's a feeling, not an actual thought. And we have a hard time differentiating these things. We think it's purely rational. Oh, I don't like him, or I don't like this group because of what they've done or because of who they are or what they are, when it's more of a feeling. And so that's something to recognize. Even in a a way of illustrating this point, you've maybe experienced this, I know I have, let's say you meet someone and you put their number in your phone. Now, if they send you a text and you see the name pop up, you probably won't feel too much. Maybe if you first met them and you're excited, you might feel some. But what people will find is usually when you start to get to know someone and you feel closer and more attached to them. Now, when you see their name on your phone, you might get very excited. You'll feel something just from their name to see what they said. And so we can see how things have changed where at the beginning, when you first put their number into your phone and you saw a text from them, you might not feel very much. Maybe it was a pleasant feeling, but not very pleasant, a very strong feeling. Now it's gotten stronger. Or maybe it's even more complex than just pleasant. Maybe there's also an anxiety or nervous about them. And then let's say you get closer, maybe that anxiety becomes less, but now you just feel a positive feeling. Again, just from seeing their name. Maybe you haven't even seen what they've texted and you might have your notification set up in a way where you can't see what they've texted. But just from seeing that name, you will feel something. And so now you're in a relationship with that person. And when they text, you feel something good. Maybe the longer you're with them, the feeling becomes a little bit less intense, but it's still positive or it might change in how it feels positive. And now with that same person, you might start to have fights. And now when you're in a fight with that person and their name pops up, it might feel a certain way, might bring some anger. You might be watching TV and you're feeling okay. And you see their, their name and you feel an angry response within you. And then now you might break up and then you break up and now a sadness comes when you see their name and you feel down and you just it makes you sad every time you see their name or anxious about what are they going to say now that we've broken up maybe they'll bring something up or maybe they want this or they want that different things can come up and then over time if you're broken up if their name let's say months later pops up or you see it you might recognize you don't feel very much there might be a very weak response maybe us, you know, we're talking about the intensity is one way of looking at it and then also positive or negative, maybe a slight negative response or a very slight positive response, but it's not much at all. So we can see that just from even something as simple as a name on our phone, because it represents that person, we can feel a whole range of things. And that feeling can evolve from very mild and maybe pleasant to more pleasant and very strong to very strong to very negative negative to maybe not very much at all. So we see that our feelings are not set, and they can change and evolve over time based on our experiences, based on things that are happening, based on how important that person or that thing is in our life. These things can change. I'm imagining now just if someone has a baby and they name their baby a certain name. You name your child uh, Maria. And so before, When you saw the name Mariam, you maybe kind of liked it and you felt something kind of positive if you ended up naming your kid that you probably did. So you had a slight positive response. But then now that it's your child's name, if you see that name now that you have a baby with that name, you're going to feel something really strong. And so that name even has a different experience for you. So this is something just to point out that, one, we have feelings towards everything. You might not think that, but everything gives us a feeling which is in this most basic way an idea of whether to approach that thing or to go away from it. Is it good for your survival or bad for your survival? We have that within us. But then also that our feelings can change. We can change the way we feel. And also, I wanted to add this point that a lot of issues, things we think of as logical things, actually more are more about feelings. And moral issues fall into that category. We'd like to think that I'm just a... Very rational person. And so if you tell me about a moral issue, I'm going to rationally look at the facts and come to a rational, logical conclusion and emotions won't play a part in it. And that sounds really nice, but I hate to break it to you. It's not what actually happens. What's really happening is you hear about a moral issue and you have an emotional response. And after you have that emotional response, you will come up with reasons to support that emotional response. But it's not that the reasoning came first. The reasoning is like this ad hoc, you playing a lawyer for yourself of explaining why you actually feel the way you do and why that is right, why you feel that is right. It's not actually because you're um, having that whole uh, logical experience that gets you there. It's more of an emotional response. Now, we might not like hearing that I'm sure many people even hearing that won't agree with me. There is a lot of research supporting that this does appear to be the way it is. If we talk about abortion or gun rights, um, or LGBTQ rights, you might think you only think about them, but you're actually feeling about them much more first than you're thinking about them. Now, that being said, to me, the good news is that it's not that it's just feelings, the, the Thinking does play a part, but also that our feelings, as I was mentioning before, can change. So if you dislike a certain group or you don't think a certain group should have rights or a certain right, that doesn't mean that has to be set in stone and fixed. And the research also shows Jonathan Haidt has done a lot of research on this um, area of moral reasoning and morality and how we tend to feel something and then think about it after the fact. Um, but he has shown that if we do talk to people, are in that way, feeling or our positions can change. So if you, one actually extreme way of looking at this is some people will be very against gay rights. They'll say gays are bad or this or that or whatever it might be, and then their child will turn out to be gay. And now they're fixed faced with this dilemma, but oftentimes their feelings about homosexuality now have changed. Something they saw as a immoral thing, a bad thing, as maybe bad for society or whatever else they thought. Now, because their own child has is showing that they are gay, they now think, well, maybe it's actually not so bad. And we'll see politicians who've even changed their stance after a family member has come out. And so we can say it's a logical thing, but really it seems like it's an emotional thing and maybe in a way to influence their logic, realizing that this thing I thought was so bad is actually not so bad. But to me, it's more that they felt it was so bad. And then seeing their own child being a certain way um, makes them realize, wait, maybe I was wrong about that. And their feeling will change. So this is why for me, when I talk about being in touch with our feelings and people might think it's not that big of a deal, the reason why it's so important for so many things, but even in this realm, is that we don't realize how much our feelings are influencing the things we think we're only thinking about and the decisions we make or the political stances that we have or how we might vote. Even when it comes to voting, I know most people think it's about the issues and we should care about the issues, but more than likely what we're doing is when you're even choosing a candidate to vote for, it's an emotional reaction. A lot of times within a few seconds of seeing the different candidates, people really make a decision about who they want to vote for. Now, afterwards, they might hear their positions and then that will help them give their reasoning as to why but usually it's more of an emotional response. And this is also why once you pick a candidate, if we tell you good things about them, you'll really believe it. If you hear bad things about them, you'll find a way to dismiss it. And the opposite of the candidate you don't like. If you dislike a candidate and they say good things about them, you say, oh, well, that's not that big of a deal. But then if someone says something negative or something negative comes out about them, you're going to highlight that. Oh, look, see how bad he or she is. See what came out about them. They're a horrible person. So for me, it's not about not thinking about things we should still think about them but also just being aware of how much our feelings are playing a part and how we have a feeling towards everything and everyone that we interact with and we always have a feeling state and the more we are aware of that the more we can actually think logically about things by incorporating both the feelings and the way we think about things but if we don't have that feeling information or if we're not aware of it We get influenced by it without being aware of its impact. And that's actually making a less logical decision than actually being in touch with the feelings. That's the paradoxical part. The more you actually pay attention to your feelings, the more you acknowledge them and are aware of them, the more logical your decisions can be because you are aware of everything you're feeling and also are things that you're thinking and can incorporate all those and integrate them together. All right, going into another commercial break, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delockwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Earlier today I talked about parenting and I wanted to continue some thoughts on parenting. So if you ask a parent or if you are a parent think to yourself, what's the important, most important thing you do as a parent, or what is your role as a parent? What are you supposed to do for your kids? And for a lot of parents, the answer you will get is to make my kids happy, which is an an understandable response. And it makes sense. And I don't want to say it's completely wrong, but I will say it's a little bit wrong and that I don't agree with that being the primary motivation or the way We look at parenting, to make your kids happy, especially that word make actually. But happiness should not be the only thing we think about. And to begin with, of course, you have to look at what does happiness even mean? Because for a lot of people, there's, there's a few ways we can define happiness. One is just a good feeling, that pleasant feeling, sometimes called even joy, but feeling good. But then there's also a happiness that is more about fulfillment. That's the happiness I think in general we should be striving for towards in our life and even with our kids. But usually people, when they think about being happy, they mean you could look at someone's face and if they're smiling, they're happy. And if they're not, then they're not happy. And so a lot of parents think my job is to essentially make sure my kids are smiling and they have a smile on their face. But the problem is when we approach parenting with this mindset that my job is to make my kids happy, we miss a lot of the important things of life, including miss teaching our children about all the emotions and that all their feelings are okay because our focus becomes on happiness smiling are you smiling i'm a good parent if you're not smiling i'm a bad parent and that's how a lot of parents feel if my kids are crying or sad somehow i'm a bad parent and i have to immediately fix that and this is why i like to use the term crisis where we replace that first i with a why, because it seems like anytime our kids are crying, it's a crisis and we have to immediately do whatever it takes to get rid of the tears. And that's the only concern we have is how can I make my kids stop crying? And a big part of that has to do with one, how I mentioned earlier, um, we have a hard time tolerating our negative feelings. And so we can't tolerate it within them, but then also if we feel like our job as a parent is to make our kids happy, then that would mean that if my kids are unhappy, I'm being a bad parent, or this means I'm a bad parent, so I have to do something about it. So this is why when I say it's at least somewhat wrong to me to think your job as a parent is to make your kids happy, is that more what you're supposed to do when it comes to their emotions is not make them happy or make them feel a certain way, but to be there with them, And show them that it's okay for them to feel whatever it is that they are feeling. That all of their feelings are okay. That it's okay to be sad or angry or upset. That's part of life too. Now of course I'll make this point clear when I say your job isn't to make your kids happy. It doesn't mean of course not to provide for them in the basic ways and to give them a lot of love. And it's also of course we avoid unavoidable uh, or the avoidable pains or pains that are not For their growth. So, I'm not saying be heartless with your kids at all, but not to have this obsession with happiness, obsession with happiness ourselves, but especially when it comes to our kids, that we're not supposed to just make them happy and make sure they're smiling all the time. So, if your kid comes to you and is crying, you respond in a way that shows that that's okay, just like you show that it's okay when they're happy. They're both okay feelings for them to have. I don't need to make my kid always feel a certain way. Unfortunately, most parents don't give their kids this message that all of their feelings are okay. They don't get the message that it's okay to be sad, just like it's okay to be happy. They get the message that being happy is good and being sad is bad. Why are you sad? You don't need to be sad. Or even I've heard many times if a child says, I think I'm feeling down or depressed. The parents say, what do you have to be depressed about? So completely invalidating the child's experience, judging them and shaming them for what they're feeling, telling them there's no reason for them ever to be sad, as if sadness comes from just one cause, or if some things are taken care of, they're not going to be sad, which is not at all the case. Just because someone has a roof over their head and food, that's great that they have those basics, but it doesn't mean they're not going to get sad or they're not going to get depressed, Um, even... Depression, sometimes there is a precipitating factor. Someone loses a job, goes through a divorce, goes through a breakup, has a death of a loved one. Sometimes it is caused by some very tangible event, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes someone doesn't know why, but they're starting to feel down and depressed. Uh, There's a lot of things going, and I don't like to look at depression as a quote-unquote chemical imbalance, but we know that things are happening in the brain that affect how people can experience depression. And so sometimes we're not exactly sure what's going on, but they might be feeling depressed. So if your child comes to you and says they're feeling depressed rather than, of course, you want to understand the why. So we're not going to ignore that, but we don't want to focus so much on the why, as in there's this one cause and I'm going to take it away. And then my kid is no longer depressed. We want to understand it in more of a bigger picture of what's going on. What are they going through? What are they experiencing? And in that way, get in touch with what's happening. For them but a lot of times parents they hear their kid is depressed and because they can't handle it one they might judge the kid but two they'll also deny it i don't know how many times i've heard from a parent that they say oh my kid said something about wanting to kill themselves but i think they were just upset or frustrated so i just ignored it i didn't bring it up again i just think they were upset and i say absolutely to me that's the wrong response you always take your child seriously when they say Uh, They want to kill themselves. By what I mean by take it seriously, I don't mean you have to call the police and mean that for sure they are actually serious that they want to do something. But we don't ignore it or we don't pretend like it's not there, hoping it goes away. Because really what you're saying is not that I know what's going on and because I know, we don't need to talk about it. Really, you're so afraid that it's true that you're afraid to face it. You're afraid that what if I ask my child if he or she was serious or really ask them what they were feeling when they said that. And the truth is that they are very depressed or very down, or they're actually considering doing something to themselves. So it's not that we know, and we're choosing to not talk about it because we already know it's because we're afraid to actually see the truth. Just like if you feel a lump and you're afraid to go in for an MRI or an X-ray or to see a doctor, because you're afraid of how bad the news is, we're doing the same thing. And the fear I can understand, I can understand that as a parent, thinking that your child might be suicidal or might be depressed is very scary and very difficult. And I can also understand physically yourself, if you feel something, there is a fear of what if, and the fear of having to face whatever is there if you find out the truth. But as much as I'm such a big proponent and fan of being in touch with our feelings, it's not that I want us to be in touch with our feelings to then let them dictate our lives. Sometimes we recognize our feelings and do something that is counter our feelings, or we recognize the feelings, but we make a different choice. So we can recognize, I am afraid to talk to my child about that statement that she just made about wanting to kill herself because I'm afraid of what if it's true, if it's true so many things. What do we do then? What do I have to do? Also, what does this mean about me as a parent? Did I do something bad? Did I do something wrong? What's going to happen to her? All those fears are totally understandable. It can make sense that I'm feeling anxious, scared, down, all these things about what they said. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to avoid trying to help because what if it is true and I then at this most critical, important moment ignore my child and God forbid they actually do take that action or feel like I'm not there for them, or maybe they're not suicidal, but they're depressed and they actually need help that can help them and I'm avoiding that. So although I have this fear, anxiety and all those things, I'm not going to let the fear and anxiety make the decision for me and I'm going to face this. I'm not going to avoid it. Just like I hope if you're worried about your physical health and something you feel on your body or something you're going through, as scary as it is, and it can be, I'm going to go find out the truth and the reality because avoiding it doesn't make the reality go away. It just takes away my ability to do something about it and to face it. And so we have to face that. So to me, if your child ever says something along those lines, don't just think it's a phase, they're just saying things, a kid this young can't be depressed. No, we see depression in young kids as well, definitely in teenagers. Um, Oftentimes with kids, you might see more acting out. And anger. So you might think, oh no, he's not depressed because he's so energetic because they're so angry. But actually, it oftentimes shows up more in the irritability and the anger and the acting out. So we might think, oh, a kid can't be depressed. A kid, what does a child have to be depressed about? Sometimes I've heard that also that a kid doesn't have the stresses of an adult life. So what can they be stressed about? But children experience different types of pain they're not as in control in their life and nonetheless again it's not always just some one root cause that's there but so always please take your kids seriously if they talk about being depressed and especially if they use the word suicide or say they want to kill themselves take it seriously and that you talk to them about it say you know what when you were crying or when you were yelling at me you said this and you said you wanted to kill yourself and I just wanted to talk to you about that to really see what's going on so you don't get mad at them and say how dare you ever say this why would you scare me like that or you're just saying it to manipulate me or to get something out of me don't attack them talk to them say what was going on tell me what's happening and maybe they'll say i was just so upset that in that moment i just said it i don't really mean it or yeah i just wanted to make you get scared because i felt like you weren't hearing me And even then, it's not that we judge them to say, oh, why would you ever say that? Don't use that as a manipulation. We see that they were trying to communicate something to us. Maybe we weren't listening to their pain enough. Maybe we didn't take it seriously enough, so they went to that extreme place. Or maybe they'll say, yeah, I was thinking about doing something. And of course, then... We have to see. Well, do we have to, if it's really an emergency, take them to the hospital? But if not, make an appointment for them to see someone. If they already see someone, contact them and maybe have them have an extra appointment. There's ways we have to get involved, but we have to face it. So I always say take suicide threats seriously. It also, in a way, if you're so worried about your child um, or not just child, but adult, whoever might be using it as a form of manipulation, if you address it, In that way, it actually can take away the threatening piece. If you say, I'm always going to take it seriously, they'll know they can't just throw the word around. So in that way, it actually helps to make it not a form of manipulation. Let's say, we're going to talk about it. Do we need to call the police or call 911 to get help or what's going on? We're not just going to throw that word around. That's also what you communicate when you take it seriously. So to me, it's always worth having that communication, having that talk about it. So if you hear your child say something, I hope you won't ignore it and take that very seriously. But coming back to this concept of not just trying to make your kids happy. For me, it's not about making your kids happy, but validating their emotional experience, whatever it might be. And in being a human being, we're not always going to be happy. That should not be your goal. I think that's one thing in the Pop psychology with all, I think positive psychology as a field is very good, but I think sometimes the what seems to trickle down to other people is that we should always be happy. Why shouldn't we be happy? It feels better to be happy, so why not be happy than sad? As if it's just some kind of choice or as if that's even possible. The analogy I sometimes make is if someone says, you know what, it's better to be awake than asleep. I'm so much more productive when I'm awake, when I'm asleep, I can't be productive. So why should I ever be tired? Why should I ever sleep? I should be awake all the time. But well, that's just not how human beings or really any animal works. We need sleep. And similarly, emotionally, you can't just always feel good. It's not just, uh, it's not possible. And it's not just, oh, we have to feel sad to feel how good the sunshine is, or whatever we might say, it's that it's just part of being a human being that some things are going to make you sad, that if you're actually connected to people, connected to things, sometimes the world and sometimes people and relationships will let you down or make you sad or make you angry. That's part of being human. You're going to feel those things. So we have to allow ourselves to experience those things. So your job as a parent isn't just to make your kid happy. Yes, you provide for them. You give them love and comfort and all those good things, But you recognize that even with all that, they're going to get down. Sometimes they're going to get angry. Sometimes they're going to be hurt and that's okay. They can handle it. But your job is not only just to take that away, but more to validate what they feel. Okay. You're sad about someone, you know, even having that mindset, your kid comes home. How was your day? Of course it feels nicer. If they say I had a great day, everything went well. Okay. But some days they're going to come home and hopefully if they're open and feel comfortably open, say. I had a horrible day. These kids made fun of me and I can get it. The gut reaction is how do I take that pain away? But that's why I say, don't just focus on making your kids happy. You want to respond by empathizing, validating, and having a conversation with them about their feelings. Always empathize first. Oh, what happened? Oh, they said that thing. Gosh, I could see how that hurt your feelings. That wasn't very nice what they said and then getting deeper into it you're not removing it you're not eliminating it but a lot of parents will go into oh who cares what kids say you'll find other friends or they're just jealous of you or something to dismiss what's happened or we'll find you new friends or we'll move your school we're just trying to remove the pain before actually letting our child have an experience letting our child be heard and making them feel validated for their feelings if they said they had a great day you'd probably be like that's great that's awesome Now they come and tell you they're sad. You say, no, that's not okay to have that feeling. So be aware of how you communicate that to your kids. Your job isn't to make them happy. It's to validate all of their feelings, all of their emotional experiences, show them that all those things are okay. They don't have to feel just one type of way. Every type of feeling is important. And before that, recognizing that my job as a parent isn't just to make them happy. So if my kids are sad, it doesn't mean I'm being a bad parent necessarily. It just means that's a part of life, and my job is to be there for them and with them through all their feelings—good, bad, sad, whatever it might be. All right, going into our last commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delawari. We'll be right back. In the last segment I talked about how as a parent you might think your job is to make your kids happy and by that the feeling of being happy all the time and how I disagree with that then I wanted to make the connection to ourselves. I alluded to it in the previous segment. Sometimes people think we're supposed to be happy all the time and there is a movement of in pop psychology as I mentioned there's also positive psychology which is good uh, to have positive psychology. Of course we tend to focus on disorders and the negative, we also have to look at what are the things that make people feel good, make people have good relationships, the positive side. If we make the analogy to physical health, it's like we should study illnesses, but we should also study the things that make people healthier as well, not just the illnesses and how to treat them, how to make people stronger and healthier in general. So I think that's very good, but what you see happening and even Los Angeles, you might see this more is this notion that you should always be happy. I'm blessed or even I know we say it in a conversational way, so I won't take it completely seriously, but it reflects something when people say, oh, I can't complain when you ask them how they're doing. And so as much as we might say, I can't complain, meaning that because I have a lot in my life, um, it doesn't mean there aren't things that we're unhappy about or we can't be unhappy about. And so I see this unfortunate effect of this that people are not very genuine, and they think they have to be happy all the time. And with social media, this is even stronger, where we have to always post a picture of how much we love our life and are enjoying our life and are good and happy and feeling good all the time, even if we're not very happy. So it's reinforcing this concept of always being happy all the time. And I think that's very unfortunate because it's leading to less genuine living, but there's lots of negative consequences. One is when we think we always have to be happy and if we get this message that we always have to be happy and it seems like everyone around us is always happy and if you ask someone they all say they're happy well then inevitably when we feel sad not if because when it's part of life we think something is wrong with us something is bad about me everyone else is happy but me Uh, Using that analogy of sleep before, it's as if we all are hiding from each other that we go to sleep at night because everyone has energy all the time and is productive all the time. And so when we go to sleep, we feel ashamed about it. I'm like, oh, gosh, I go and I sleep for seven, eight hours. I'm so lazy. I'm so bad. No one else is doing that. But really, everyone is sleeping. And the same is true with sadness or negative feelings, if we want to call them that. Although everyone pretends or wants to pretend like they're happy all the time, we all feel sad or down sometimes. It's part of being human. It's part of life that sometimes we feel sad, but unfortunately we all hide it from each other and we all want to pretend like we're always happy. So then we all internally feel bad about those times when we are down sometimes. So I think this is unfortunately a huge negative consequence of this movement to always be happy, always be positive. That is not good. It takes away from um, how we feel about ourselves and it also takes away from the closeness in our relationships because it's great to share happy moments. Absolutely. So I'm not against that. Sometimes I think people listen to me and they think I want everyone to be crying and sad all the time. That's definitely not the case that anyone who knows me knows I'm a positive person in a lot of ways and like I have fun and I enjoy life. But I think it's so important to also be connected to the sad feelings as well, to not be disconnected from them. That's why I push people there. I encourage that because I know people go away from those feelings so much. And that can have so many negative consequences. So in our relationships, great, celebrate together, have fun. You need that. You need to have good times together. But what we also notice is usually if you think of anyone you're very close to, it's someone who you've shared negative moments with as well, or you have shared your negative moments when you're feeling sad or you've cried to them or they've cried to you. These are the things that actually create the closeness. So when we try to pretend like everything is good all the time. We keep our relationships at a surface level. And that's one huge negative consequence I see. I'm good, you're good, we're all good, 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 good. Okay, that's it. But if we actually share, you know what, I'm going through this, it's been very difficult. That's when real closeness starts to form. I'm actually feeling pretty down the last few days. I don't even know why. Or I'm feeling down about this, and this is what's going on. That's when we actually feel close. You can feel a nice feeling towards people of that you just see and have polite conversations with, that's nice, but you're never going to feel so close to someone unless we're willing to share that negative stuff too, the stuff that doesn't feel good. But first and foremost, we have to acknowledge it ourselves and realize it's okay. Everyone gets sad. Sometimes everyone gets down sometimes. And I mentioned before, sometimes when people make arguments for being sad, they'll say, well, if you don't see sadness, you don't feel the positive or If you don't see the rain, you don't get the rainbows. And there's some truth to that. But sometimes I think to think that we have to feel sad to feel good in the sense that we have to be able to recognize the good only if we've been felt sad. I don't agree with that part. But to me, it's more that if we want to feel the good, we have to allow ourselves to feel the bad or maybe to put it more clearly, if you want to feel good, you have to allow yourself to feel period meaning you have to allow yourself to actually feel whatever is going on in order to feel what is there. Um, I think Brené Brown in one of her TED Talks mentioned that we can't just numb some feelings, which is what we try to do. Okay, I want to feel super happy and feel good, but I want to never feel the pain or the sadness or the anger ever. But I want to feel the happiness. And we see that this doesn't really work because if we try to numb some feelings, we don't feel the good ones. The analogy I use is, let's say, Someone says, you know what? I don't want to feel pain, so in my back, I want you to inject some really strong painkillers. And you inject the very strong painkillers, and now they don't feel pain. Okay. But now if you massage their back, they also won't feel the pleasure or the good feeling either. When you numb, you numb all the feelings. If you numb the pain you also numb the pleasure. So if we try to not let ourselves feel certain feelings, unfortunately, the consequence is that we might not feel the pain as much, but we also won't feel the pleasure as much. So for me, the idea of good living is when we actually allow ourselves to feel all of the feelings. So when you feel very sad, allow yourself to feel sad and see what's there. But then also when you feel something good, let yourself feel that goodness as well. Don't try to mute or numb either or both of them. Let yourself experience those things. And also to me, happiness shouldn't be our goal in the sense of just feeling happy in a moment. Just, okay, I want to feel good all the time, feel joyful. First of all, I think if you let that dictate your life, you won't lead a very good life because you usually will pick the easier thing, the more comfortable thing, and most of the time in life, what leads to growth and leading what I would consider a good life is taking. The harder road a lot of times, okay, it'd be easier not to study and go have fun with your friends, but I want to study and I'm going to stay home. So I just do what makes me happy in that moment. It would be to go out and have fun with my friends, but I'm going to stay home and study or exercise or uh, have a difficult conversation. This is what you see in relationships. Yeah. If you're with your partner and you're having a nice day, it can be uncomfortable and it could in that way, quote unquote, ruin the mood to then talk about something sad. I get that, but if you want to have a healthy and strong relationship, you have to face those things. So people will say that all Say, Oh, we were having such a good day. Then you had to bring up that conversation. I can't believe you ruining everything, but it's actually about this conversation is important. Yes. If we just focus on being happy in the moment, we would not talk about these things ever, but that's not going to lead to a good and happy relationship and a happy life. We have to face those things. So we don't want to just let Happiness, as far as feeling good in the moment, dictate our life. For me, it's not about striving for that kind of happiness. It's more about striving for a life that you feel content and fulfilled with, which means when you look at your life, you feel good about it. But it doesn't mean it always just makes you feel good and makes you feel happy. I'm happy with the choices I've made in the way I live my life, but I'm not always just feeling in a pleasant state every moment. Overall, I think you'll feel better than you'll feel bad, but that's not just the goal. I'd rather live a fulfilled life than a happy life where I'm just feeling good. Um, and because of that, that means sometimes you'll face things that aren't comfortable because I see people that say, well, you know, there's things going on in the world, but if I think about them, it makes me sad, so I don't want to think about them. And I'm not suggesting just dwell on them all the time and just put yourself in a bad mood and do nothing about it, but actually face the reality and do things you can. And so if we're connected to this world, it's going to make you sad sometimes. If you feel things for people in your life, then when they go through things, you're going to feel a little bit. If you want to never feel sad, you have to, in a way, disconnect yourself from everything and everyone, and then you might not ever feel sad. But to me, you won't feel very good. To begin with, then you won't live a life you're very content or happy about. So the reason why you might hear me in some ways sounding like I want everyone to cry or I want everyone to be sad is not because I want them to be sad or sadder than they are. It's that, that I recognize that almost all people have a lot of pain and sadness within them that they're not in touch with and that they're denying from themselves and also denying to the people around them. And it interferes with how close they are to themselves and how close they are in their relationships to other people because we're not actually connected to them. So I'm not trying to make people more sad. I'm saying there's a pain there that I want you to get connected to. It's kind of like if a dentist said, hey, I want you to come in to get a cleaning and we're going to do a dental exam. And in doing so, they might find cavities or gum issues or other things that are going on. The dentist doesn't want you to feel pain or doesn't want you to come have cavities. They're saying there's pain there. I want us to actually recognize it one, because that itself is good, but also because it could become worse if we don't do anything about it. That's in a way how I feel when I'm encouraging people to get in touch with the sadness. It's not that I want them to be more sad. It's already there. The dentist knows that if everyone gets an exam, we'll find things that are there that need to be addressed. They're not trying to promote bad dental health or promote people to have dental pain. They're trying to get people in touch actually to make it so they don't have that and they have a healthier mouth. I want people to have uh, to face the pains they have emotionally so that they can address them, but also so they can have healthier minds and healthier relationships. As I said before, you can't get that close to someone if everything is good all the time, if you pretend like everything is okay. And of course, It doesn't mean the first moment you meet someone new, you're going to tell them all the sad things going on. It makes sense that we slowly build trust. We slowly build intimacy. We slowly uncover more of who we are. We even uncover or take down those masks. That makes sense. You need to have some of that small talk and that surface. You build intimacy um, slowly. I kind of imagine going deeper, like going deep in the ocean. You can't all of a sudden go so deep that actually... not work physiologically either you slowly go lower and lower together you show each other you can trust each other you show each other that the person will respond in a way that feels good and you reveal more and become more intimate it's a process but you have to take that risk to go lower and lower but the first step is recognizing it in ourselves and recognizing that you're not supposed to be happy all the time and something i've also mentioned before is that sometimes we talk about gratitude which is so important it's so wonderful and meaningful to have a mindset of gratitude but at the same time being grateful doesn't mean you can't be upset about something at the same time if you're spending time with your friend you might say i'm so grateful for the time we spent but that thing you said hurt my feelings it doesn't mean it makes you ungrateful or even with parents people happen this happens a lot in therapy they say you know my mom or my dad these did these things that hurt me but i feel like i'm being ungrateful if i bring those things up because they sacrificed so much for me and both of those things can be true they sacrificed so much for you they cared about you so much but there's things that they did that hurt you that acknowledging those doesn't mean you're still not grateful for what they did you're just acknowledging the whole reality So we can be grateful, but also have things we don't like at the same time. It's not black or white. And the reality is that both are happening. I'm so grateful for what you did, but this hurt my feelings. Or I'm so grateful to my parents for everything that they did, all the hard work, sacrifice. But I see that these are the ways that things they did hurt my feelings or have affected me and who I am. We can be both. So I don't want you to be sad all the time, but I also don't want you to pretend like you're happy all the time. I'm hoping for everyone to be more in touch with whatever it is they're feeling to be more genuine with themselves and genuine with each other. We don't have to act like we're happy to ourselves or each other. And related to that, the book of this week looks at depression. Uh, I'll say it again. I'll talk about it next week. What to do when someone you love is depressed, a practical, compassionate, and helpful guide by Mitch Gallant and Susan Golant, And looking at how you can be there for someone when they're depressed. But of course, first, we have to be willing to show each other when we're depressed or down so that we can't be there for one another. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you to Farhuda here in the studio and everyone listening out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalaqui. Have a wonderful day.